very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview that I guarantee you will never hear in the mainstream media, you know what to do by now. Just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. And if you haven't tried Sanitas Radio yet, I highly recommend that you do. Right on our website, VeritasRadio.com, you should see our latest Sanitas interview or go to SanitasRadio.com. This week, we featured Kathy Scogna, Junk DNA, Unlocking the Hidden Secrets of Your DNA. Again, Sanitas is doing for your full potential as a human what Veritas is doing for the truth. So check it out at sanitasradio.com. During the 75 years that have now passed since the end of the grand history-altering event known as World War II, only a single narrative of the great conflict has been heard. It is a story which the architects of the New World Order have implanted, no, pounded into the minds of three subsequent generations. Every medium of mass indoctrination has been harnessed to the task of training the obedient masses as to what the proper view of this event should be. Academia, news media, public education, book publishing, TV documentaries, Hollywood films, clergymen, and politicians of every stripe all sing the same song. And to discuss the bad war that truth never taught about World War II, tonight's special guest is Mike King, right now on Veritas. Mike King is a private investigative journalist and researcher based in New York City. A 1987 graduate of Rutgers University, King's subsequent 30-year career in marketing and advertising has equipped him with a unique perspective when it comes to understanding how quote-unquote public opinion is indeed scientifically manufactured. King is also the author of The War Against Putin, what the government media complex isn't telling you about Russia. King's other interests include the animal kingdom, philosophy, chess, cooking, literature, and history with emphasis on events of the late 19th through the 20th centuries. And for a more comprehensive bio, visit our website. It's linked there. And if you want to learn more about 
my king and his work and his new book, The Bad War, visit tomatobubble.com. And directly from Patterson, New Jersey, I would like to welcome Mike King back to Veritas. Hello, Mike, and welcome back. Hey, Bell, it's good to be back with you uh, again. Uh, we, we spoke about the war against Putin last time, and I'm uh, excited to tell you all about the bad war. Absolutely. And speaking of Putin, I'm glad to hear that there's at least a temporary ceasefire in Ukraine right now. Let's see what happens with that. But that's for the, the other show. This is a very important interview we have today because tomorrow, February the 13th, is the anniversary, the 70th anniversary of Dresden. Your new book is The Bat War, The Truth Never Taught About World War II. Now, why is it that here in this part of the world, we know World War II as the good war. Why is that, Mike? Well, in essence, it, it is the good war. It depends on your perspective. Uh, for that, what I call the PRC, the predatory ruling class, uh, which was very nearly overthrown uh, by Hitler in Germany during World War II, uh, the results of that war and the destruction of Germany uh, was good uh, for them. So that's the joke. Uh, but for anyone with a sense of decency, uh, morality, and any kind of human compassion, there was nothing good about this war. It was uh, evil through and through, and, and, the, and the lie continues for 70 years. And Mike, obviously, to deliver a truth or a lie, you need to have a delivery mechanism. In this case, the media or the propaganda machine critical for shaping public opinion. When did the press begin to be dominated in Europe and the U.S., and by whom? Well, by the usual suspects, members of a certain tribe, and I go into that in the book because it's critical, because we could not have been driven into two world wars against Germany without the influence uh, of the Zionist press. Uh, but the, the first major acquisition uh, was in the 1870s when Paul Reuters established uh, uh, Reuters International Press uh, Agency, and his birth name is uh, uh, Burrell Israel, uh, something like that. Uh, so it, it began with the establishment of Reuters, and then you have the, the Zionist family, the Sulzberger Oaks family, acquired the New York Times in 1896. Uh, and then later on, you had the Meyer family acquired the Washington Post, William Paley at CBS Radio, Robert Sarnoff, NBC Radio. So by the time we arrive at the eve of World War II, uh, the tribe has got the entire uh, major media already on lockdown. And that is critical then, and it remains the case today. Uh, and that's why the, you know, the, the lie is able to be perpetuated. And why is it that when you tell people of this truth, including the truth about the Federal Reserve, that some people may think it's not related, but it's very related to this. And you tell them what the truth about behind the Federal Reserve and who's behind it. They look at you as if you're from another planet. Why is that? Well, I mean, it is a, a big psychological component uh, to this. It's a constant uh, conditioning. Um, you know, one of the things a conspirator knows to do in order to get away with this crime is to uh, make you believe that there was no crime. So, uh, but this is a psychological conditioning. The moment you begin to talk about these matters, uh, not only does the mind shut down, 
but they begin to view you as one of those people that they were warned about, you know, those horrible extremists, uh, anti-Semites, Nazis, so on. So we're, we're up against Pavlovian conditioning, which is the main barrier, even more so than the intellectual hurdles that we have to overcome in telling the truth. And since when, well, let me just preface this question by thinking, if you have a certain group that is able to escalate government levels, and then you have a group that has the media, the propaganda machine, and we'll talk about Edward Bernays and Bernard Baruch in a few minutes, but you have the financiers. Let's begin with the Rothschilds. Since when have the Rothschilds been financing wars? Oh, I mean, you go back to really the Napoleonic Wars, the wars against Napoleon. They were already immensely wealthy by that time, but that is really when they consolidated, uh, they begin to consolidate their political power and expand their, their, their wealth. Uh, they financed a war against Napoleon, who was uh, anti usury. He was, anti, he was against this lending of money and interest. Uh, so his monetary system had to be uh, destroyed early on. And the vehicle for doing that, as always, was England. And then later on, as we get into the 20th century, you know, that baton of being the main hitman of the New World Order uh, passed on to America. Uh, so, we're, you know, we're going back a couple centuries with this, uh, pretty much to the time of the French Revolution. And, uh, I mean, that family is still very much in business and at the heart of world affairs. Do you think that the the British royalty is just a facade, but the ones who really own Britain, perhaps most of the world's assets, are the Rothschilds and some of the other families? Uh, well, I mean, that's even been acknowledged in the so-called mainstream press that the Rothschild family is the wealthiest family in history. Uh, and it was sometime during the 19th century where they became the true masters of, of Britain. And, you know, the British and the American elite, uh, you know, now pretty much, I mean, they're in league with them, but playing a supporting role uh, only. And it's not just the Rothschilds at this point. The network has uh, since expanded. Um, but it is a mafia. It is a global uh, mafia, which at its inner inner core uh, is globalist, Zionist, Jewish, what, what have you, at its inner core. Uh, but there's mem members, many uh, uh, different nationalities who uh, are, are part of this. So people may say, looking at their version of history or the history that we have been provided, and they probably read that the Jewish population of the world has been persecuted for millennia. And some may say, well, what's wrong about finding a piece of land somewhere around the world? It could have been Uganda, which they declined, but they actually went after Palestine. Now, I'm mentioning a few players on the real history in chronological order so that people can get an idea if they haven't gotten it yet. But who was Theodore Herzl and how was he instrumental in the plot to steal Palestine from the Arabs? And yes, it was 90 to 90 percent, 90 to 95 percent Arab, and it was controlled by the Ottoman Turks. What changed there? Well, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, Herzl was the, um, at least as a front man, the founding father of the Zionist movement in the late 1900s. Uh, and at this time, they were just 
people meeting in places like Switzerland with this crazy idea of getting a strip of land smack dab in the middle of the Ottoman Empire, uh, which, you know, it's impossible. I mean, the, the Jews did not have any kind of army to, to go in and do that. And the Ottomans cer certainly weren't about to give it away. Um, but they had in mind already, and Herzl himself uh, wrote this in the 1890s, uh, that in the future, uh, a world body will give Palestine uh, to us. And uh, he predicted that the day would come where he would be recognized as the uh, as the father of Israel. Uh, so this is a big part. This is a big element um, going into World War One against the Ottoman Turkish Empire. Uh, so that was one of the objectives is to take that strip of land and then begin the process of uh, uh, Jewish immigration to Palestine, which, as you said, was almost exclusively Arab uh, at that time. Uh, but that's interesting. How did they know that there would be a future world body um, unless they were controlling uh, events? And indeed, I go into this in the book that, uh, you know, World War One didn't just materialize out of nowhere. There were many uh, machinations and maneuvers taking place in the late 18, uh, um, the late 1800s that ultimately culminated with World War One which in essence was the first uh, half of um, one big war, World War II being the second half. In many ways, it's the same war. Let me revisit the world body in a moment, but thinking of the Ottoman Turks, they were not going to give it away that easily, but the bankers tried by forgiving some of their debt. Didn't they try to forgive some of their debt in exchange for Palestine? Uh, yes, initially they tried to buy their way in, and the uh, the Ottoman Turks did allow <clears throat> what was known as the uh, the Alayah movement, which was very limited amount of uh, immigrants going in there and, and and farming. But as far as to give away the, the land, that that they would not go for. So, and, and that's typically how these people operate. Uh, first, they try to buy you, and and then they go to the um, Stage two, which is the violence. They either subvert you or they destroy you. And when Herschel, going back to the world body, when Herschel kept referring to a quote-unquote future world body, obviously he was referring to the League of Nations, uh, wasn't he? Or the United Nations. Well, yeah, that's right. And that's exactly what came out of World War uh, I. And it was really one of the two major objectives uh, of the First World War is to uh, lay the groundwork for the globalist state. And then secondary objective was to, to grab Palestine. Um, and then again, also at this time, the alliances, which were later triggered like dominoes that brought about World War I, they were being set into place uh, at this time. The French, the British, the Russians, so on. When did the plot against Germany begin? And, and did Bismarck foresee it yeah absolutely well it, it began pretty much from the establishment of the german reich which would have been uh, uh late 1860s uh, which grew out of the franco-prussian war and it's interesting now even establishment historians uh concede that the franco-prussian war was napoleon iii's deal uh he started that war it was an imperialist uh, adventure he was the uh, uh france was a monarchy again 
he was the nephew of uh, the Napoleon, and France was defeated again uh, by Prussia in an alliance of 30 German uh, smaller states. And out of that war, they united and thus was born the German Reich, which very soon was on its way to becoming a world economic power, yet peaceful. But France always wanted a second shot uh, at, at Germany. At that time, didn't they welcome a lot of the Jews and they prospered and they flourished? Well, it's interesting. Um, Bismarck, who was the, the first chancellor of this uh, unified German state, uh, he being the political leader, and then, of course, the emperor was Wilhelm I. Uh, but, you know, Bismarck was the real mover and shaker. He was the great statesman. And one of the first uh, acts, and, and this was in the first year of the new German Reich, is Bismarck, uh, They Germany extended full citizenship rights to its Jewish population, which made it the only European country, the first to do that at the time. That was kind of a revolutionary move. And, and Germany was very tolerant. And for the next uh, 50 or so years, the the Jews of Germany lived very well. Uh, the the notion of anti-Semitism was something that existed only on the margins of society. Uh, so everything was cool between the Germans and the Jews. And and this is never talked about in the history books, and nor is it ever mentioned. Uh, I mean, it, the question is never asked. Rather, what is it that soured this seemingly happy uh, friendship? What happened after World War One that caused a reversal of this uh, tolerance and good feeling and good relations? And that's never asked, but it's critical to understanding both world wars. And I, I address it in the bad war. Let's let's discuss that change of heart because when I read that Germany through Bismarck and the government is the first to to allow or grant citizenship privileges to his Jewish population. Even the Rothschilds, England, uh, with there wasn't Benjamin Disraeli, a Jew as well, and they hadn't granted Jewish uh, citizenship to their population. So this is this is something that many people have no idea that could have possibly happened. But that change of heart from being so welcoming, from having so many prosperous people by the end of the 1800s, uh, people, you know, they, they, they obtained great degree of influence over German commerce, universities, press, political arts, and central banking. What changed then? Well, what changed was the Great War, as it was known at the time. We know it as World War I, um, which pitted the alliance of Germany, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottoman Turks against uh, England, France, Russia, and then later on, America. Without going too much into detail, people can read the bad war, learn more about it. But that war was imposed upon Germany. They were also innocent of World War I. Uh, but the fact of the matter is Germany was winning the war. Not one square inch of German territory was ever under occupation. And while winning, they uh, continued to propose very generous peace terms to Britain and France, which required nothing of them. And these peace terms were considered, serious, seriously considered, uh, in order to end the war. And it was at that critical juncture that the Zionist leadership 
approached the uh, the British leadership and said, you know, you don't have to make a peace. You can still win this war. We can get, we can use our influence to bring America into the war on Britain's side, and that will turn the tide. Uh, in exchange, what we want is after the war is over and the Ottoman Empire is busted up, you give us access to Palestine. And out of that grew the Balfour Declaration. And that is the true story of how the United States was dragged into this senseless war, uh, World War I. It was part of a dirty deal. And indeed, once the United States entered the war, uh, immediately the bulk of the British forces, which had been fighting Germany, uh, diverted southward towards the Ottoman Empire for the purpose of capturing uh, uh, Palestine. That was one of the purposes, and that was the payoff. Now, also at this point in time, uh, when Germany was on the brink of winning the war, you had, the, in addition to the Jewish Zionists, you had the Jewish Marxists who wanted Germany to lose the war. Uh, so the Zionists wanted Germany to lose the war so they can grab Israel. And the, the Marxists just wanted to overturn the system. So uh, labor strikes were organized. At a, just when the German army needed the munitions the most, there were labor strikes organized by these Jewish union leaders. And then you had the Jewish press uh, of Germany and Austria-Hungary. They dominated it. And, and all of a sudden, they started uh, pouring cold water on, onto the uh, war effort started getting real negative and demoralizing the people. And this all contributed to uh, a turnabout of events and left the Germans after the war scratching their heads saying, you know, son of a gun, we were so good to these people. And they sold us out. They sold us out for Marxism. They sold us out for Zionism. And this became known as the stab in the back. And in, my, in the bad war, you'll see some of the cartoons from that era of German soldiers uh, being stabbed in the back by a Zionist uh, hand. And modern-day historians refer to this as the legend of the stab in the back. But there was nothing legendary about it. Germany was sold out by the Jewish hand, and that's what changed the, that one-time tolerant attitude um, and allowed a more anti-Semitic uh, attitude to, uh, to come about. But once again, if the Jewish population had it so well and they were so prosperous in Germany. And we can hear, we heard at least during World War II when, when the agreement passed where Hitler, you know, sent them to, to go to Palestine if they wanted to, many of them refused and they wanted to stay behind because Germany was their homeland. So were they in fact sacrificial lambs by the Rothschilds and, and the, the Schiffs and the Warburgs? Were they the ones really behind all of it? And like, I think it was her, uh, Theodore Herschel who said, it's okay. You can shake a tree and a few fruits will fall, but the tree will stand. Zionism must prevail. Well, I mean, that's right. I mean, certainly not all of the Jews of Germany were communists and not all of them were Zionists. Uh, I mean, I don't have scientific data to back this up, but I, I would venture to say Maybe a quarter of them had a, a, a Marxist leaning, maybe another quarter had a Zionist leaning. And, you know, the other ones are just generally sheep who follow uh, the leader. Um, but the fact remains, if you look at the communist subversive movement in Germany, uh, as it was in Russia, uh, I mean, it was totally kosher as a bar mitzvah. That's the reality.
uh, of it. And yeah, so you know, as far as like the the Germans who stayed behind um, during the war, I, I, there were about three hundred thousand of them. Eighty uh, percent of them were would be considered solidly middle class, so they lived well in uh, Germany. And indeed, Hitler had one hundred fifty thousand uh, soldiers who were either half Jewish or quarter Jewish. So it, it's not this foaming at the mouth, uh, insane anti-Semitism that one would believe uh, occurred. It wasn't like that at all. Um, it was more a, really a concern about the Jewish Marxists. And does that make sense to anybody who follows his hyphen story right now when you have Hitler having so many Jewish soldiers? If he really despised all of them, then just like what happened in the United States, uh, the Japanese were put into internment camps. Do we have any Japanese, ethnic Japanese in our military in the United States during World War II? This is kind of a side question. Um, I would imagine we did, but I, I can't answer that question. Um, you know, but I, I know in the case of Joe DiMaggio, the famous baseball player, because his father was Italian and was a fisherman who lived on the shore, he lost his business. They, they had to move inland. Somehow, I guess they figured the Italians were coming to San Francisco. <laughs> but I mean, isn't that something? I mean, here you have uh, Joe DiMaggio giving up uh, good years of his career, risking his life. And meanwhile, dad is having his business stripped away from him. Um, and, and, and of course, there's a difference between uh, the ultimate internment of, of uh, the Jews of occupied Europe and, and, and the Japanese of America in that none of those Japanese Americans were at all subversive or involved in any kind of uh, sabotage activities. Whereas in Europe, uh, there were as many as 100,000 uh, Jewish participants in partisan groups or communist guerrilla groups. Uh, plus, they had a support network. So, you know, Judaism was at war with, with Germany. There's more of a basis for the what was meant to be a temporary wartime in, internment during the war while German cities are being bombed uh, than what FDR did in interning Japanese. And this whole notion of six million Jews facing extermination, uh, let's start in Russia, then in Germany, that started in 1906. People think that this just came during World War II. Take us back in time when this notion of the six million Jews to be exterminated start. Well, I reproduced the actual newspaper headlines uh, in the bad war. <clears throat> and, I mean, you go back as early as 1905 during the first uh, uh, communist uprising in, in, in Russia. There were claims in 1910 and 1914, on and on, that the Jews were always in danger of being exterminated or starving. And they continually throw this number of six million out. There's at least 10 different occasions between 1900 and 1939 where the six million figure. So evidently it has some kind of symbolic um, meaning to it. So long before we heard of the six million in World War II, uh, this has been published. And you can see it in old issues of the New York Times, uh, which are reproduced in the book. Why do you think? The, the, the specific figure, six million. I don't know why I just keep thinking of the six million dollar man and Oscar Goldman during these, you know what I mean, the 70s. Why that number? 
I, I don't know. I don't know if it has something to do with the six-pointed star, some kind of a occultic significance. Uh, I don't know if they related to 666. I, I don't know for sure. That's very esoteric knowledge that I don't have access to. We can speculate, but clearly there is a meaning uh, behind it. No, that's fine. And now let me just discuss for a moment false flags. Let's call them modern day false flags because I assume that this has been happening for thousands of years. But did modern day false flags begin with the sinking of the USS Maine? Oh, yeah. Um, there's no there's no question about that one in terms of American history. Well, I mean, actually, Lincoln uh, induced the South into attacking first, but that wasn't really a false flag. But the main, and I mentioned briefly the Spanish-American War in this book, because that is the starting point of the globalist American effort to gain control of the Asian Pacific. Uh, now, what was the way they sold us that war was that uh, the Spaniards were oppressing the Cubans. And we have to liberate the Cubans. Um, but really, what they were after was the Spanish bases in the Pacific. Guam uh, and the, the Philippines. Main, in Guam, that's right. Um, but the agitation for the Spanish-American War went on for many months, and there were outrageous propaganda stories in the New York press. Uh, but still, it, an incident was required, and uh, Naval Secretary Theodore Roosevelt, on his own initiative, he was actually the assistant Naval Secretary, and he did this on his own as the assistant. He ordered the Maine, amidst this environment of war propaganda, to to sail into the uh, uh, the harbor at uh, Havana. And coincidentally, heavy sarcasm on that, in quotes, the Maine blew up and 260 American sailors were killed. Uh, immediately, they blamed the Spaniards. The Spaniards protested their, their innocence. Um, but now the impetus was too great to avoid going to war. President McKinley did not want this war, but it was forced upon him. And within 24 hours, Mel, of the start of this holy war to liberate the oppressed Cuban people, it was all about Cuba, Cuba, Cuba. But the first act of, again, Theodore Roosevelt was to, uh, to issue orders to Commodore Dewey to take the Philippines and Guam. That happened almost immediately. It's really weird. A war that was supposed to liberate Cuba became a war to take those bases in the Pacific. And that was the real deal. The real reason uh, right there. And again, that's part of the uh, the Japanese angle of World War Two. So uh, that's why I mentioned that in the book. But well, yes, the main the main was a false flag. There's no question about that one. And in fact, the U.S. government since that time now admits that the Spaniards had nothing to do with it. Uh, they claim it was an accident, of course, a spontaneous explosion. Um, but they even admit that the Spaniards had nothing to do with it. Yeah, just like uh, the Gulf of Tonkin, just like the Lusitania, etc. And wasn't uh, Hawaii an innocent bystander during this conflict as well? All of a sudden, we took it from yeah, well, the natives. As part of this effort to project this globalist power and to begin to take over Asia, uh, it was important to establish a naval base at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. Uh, of course, the native Hawaiians didn't want that, and nor did they want to be a state. Uh, this was an artificial movement uh, ginned up by some businessmen on Hawaii. Um, 
and it required a two-thirds approval of the U.S. Senate. And that wasn't happening either. So you have the U.S. Senate wasn't going to give a two-thirds approval. And then you have the Hawaiian people themselves uh, did not want to become a territory either. But what happened is with the so-called crisis of the Spanish-American War, the Senate, uh, they passed some resolution that instead of requiring two-thirds, they only required a majority of the House and Senate. And they stampeded it amidst all this patriotic, uh, you know, pure. And, 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 and so it was during the Spanish-American War. That's how Hawaii became a territory. And in time, the, the base on Pearl Harbor was uh, established. So, again, important background information to have in order to understand the uh, uh, Pacific portion uh, of World War II. Uh, so, you know, Japan has been mis misrepresented just as much as Germany. And, and were we trying to, to not subjugate, but undermine Japan or China with these moves? All, really all of, all of Asia, uh, because, you know, ultimately that's the goal of the New World Order. And also to project power against uh, Russia, because, you know, Russia has uh, <clears throat> an Asian portion uh, as well. So... You know, out of this grew a very strong American naval presence in Guam, in Philippines, and in um, um, Pearl Harbor, uh, of course. And it's interesting, in my, um, you'll find in China, during the war between China and Japan, it, it was the U.S. which was propping Chiang Kai-shek, in some ways, was an American puppet. Right. But there were many Chinese who viewed the Japanese as the, uh, the heroes, the champions of Asia. They wanted to be free of Western influence. And at the same time, they, they really they didn't want to go Mao Zedong's way. He was the communist revolutionary at the time. So they kind of welcomed the, uh, the Japanese. So that's like another element that's not understood. Uh, the, the Japanese were fighting for, and there were, there were actually many Chinese sympathizers um, who, who really wanted to be rid of this Western Influence. I mean, these are civilizations and cultures that go back many centuries. Um, you know, it's understandable. They want to be independent. Um, so, but, you know, that was not to be the case. Wasn't Mao Zedong Stalin's agent in China? Yeah, that, yeah, that, that, that's right. Uh, he, was, he was Stalin's uh, agent, and he and his revolutionaries were out to... Uh, you know, overthrow the government, uh, but they had a hard time doing it. They didn't become strong enough to uh, to accomplish that <clears throat> until after World War II. And it was as a direct result of FDR allowing Stalin to gain a foothold uh, in Asia, and that's how China uh, went communist. And ironically, much like Russia today, you know, now they've kind of gone back off the plantation. And, you know, they're independent. They don't want to be subjugated to the new world order. And you can't even call China communist today. I mean, they're more pro-business than uh, uh, America. Uh, but certainly going back, Mao Zedong was a, was a real criminal and a thug. Uh, and he would not have come to power without the U.S. So Chiang Kai-shek was ultimately uh, betrayed. You know, that's how we do. We'll, we'll set up a government. We'll use somebody as a, a quasi-puppet. And then when they're done with using him, they'll discard him. 
Uh, and that's what we did to Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, he was useful in waging war against Japan. And then when Japan was uh, defeated, they got, it's bye-bye, Chiang. But why was there a Sino-Soviet split since, you know, you have the USSR, communist, you have China, communist. Why was there a split if they had very similar ideologies? Well, I mean, they had similar ideologies in some ways, but other ways dissimilar. I, I, I mean, a lot of it is, you know, nations will, just as a natural matter of course, will, will tend to creep back towards uh, nationalism. So even though the old Soviet Union was communist and China was communist, they drift away from the globalist model and they have their own interests. So it's just a matter of two you know, great powers side by side uh, having some differences. It was very hard at times to keep that whole communist world together because the original model was to be one world you know, communism. And that was the Trotsky uh, model. Trotsky, right. Yeah, uh, but you know, Stalin turned out to be more of a nationalistic communist, and, and so did China. So, uh, you know, pe people are always going to have their own interests. It's just not natural to put everything under a uh, a single yoke. And you're seeing a little bit now of this in the European Union. Uh, countries like Hungary is bucking the system. Uh, Greece is in its own way trying to uh, resist. It's just not natural to have so many different peoples and cultures under this uh, yoke. And, and to me, that's what the, you know, some of the uh, uh, conflict between uh, the old Soviet Union and China was all about. Of course, th today, today they're very, they have very excellent relations. Do you think that Stalin was the one who ordered the hit on Trotsky in Mexico, axing him to death? Just like many people don't know this, but uh, some speculate that Fidel Castro actually gave the location where Che Guevara was hiding, and that's how the CIA got him, because he didn't want the spotlight on him, just like Trotsky. Oh, that, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that. Uh, but, but yes, St Stalin had Trotsky taken out, and again, it goes back to a conflict of visions. Trotsky was your typical globalist, communist, uh, uh, you know, New, New York Jewish internationalist. To him, you know, Soviet Union, Russia meant nothing. It's just all about one world uh, revolution. And uh, Stalin's vision was, <laughs> I'm not taking orders from New York and London, you know. So uh, kind of like a, uh, a rivalry among ma mafia families. So he had them wiped out. But that was really part of the big difference. The whole, you know, nationalistic communism versus, you know, one worldism you know, run by the Rothschilds. And I'll go back to the Bolshevik revolution uh, later, but let me just mention this. And, and what about the mysterious protocols of the learned elders of Zion published in Russia in 1905? Some allege the protocols were forged by Russian security agents in order to convince the Tsar of the new world order's existence. However, Somebody, Mike, has to be living under a rock if you don't notice world events that have matched and continue to match the protocols. Can you mention the master plot included on this plan? Yeah. Well, it is It is really a stunning uh, document. And, and, and after Russia fell to the communists, kind of became a worldwide sensation because, you know, you have to remember to, in 1905, for these papers to surface, 
and talking about things like the fall of Russia, the um, destruction of the Catholic Church within a hundred years, um, the the use of sports and entertainment to divert the public, um, the 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 deliberate corruption of traditional morality, taking the endless debt. It goes on and on and on. I mean, it describes our current world to a T. Yet, I there when you were saying the protocols discusses using the press to uh, uh, corrupt the public morality. Um, so, I mean, everything we see happening in the world today, uh, it's obvious now, but it was not in 1905. So somebody had some type of unusual esoteric knowledge, forged or not. And this is, uh, Solzhenitsyn wrote, wrote about this, and Henry Ford was of the same view. They said, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a forgery. If it is, somebody was trying to tell us something. Uh, but the world has developed exactly along those lines of the protocols. And ultimately, it ends with uh, a one-world uh, system. So it's an amazing document. And uh, it, it was quite the rage at one time. Uh, now it's never talked about. It's forbidden. Why is it forbidden? And by whom? Well, it's forbidden by the powers that be, because if you read that document, and again, it is irrelevant if it's a forgery or not. I mean, if I were to write a biography, say, of uh, Mel Fabregas, and, and I call it an autobiography, well, it's a forgery because I'm not you. However, if in doing so, I interviewed every person who ever knew you since I was a child, and, and everything was correct, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Then it's, yeah. you can't really say it's a... It, it, a forgery just because I put your name to it. But it's just so, that every point, every point. I'm and reading, every, and I, by every, I mean every. Every single one has come to, to fruition. I mean, they were talking about 1905. This is back then, or even might have been written earlier, about using the press to hype up sports so people would be distracted. Now, you know, there were sports back then, but. You didn't have this uh, these endless seasons and and all this press and these international competitions. I mean, how did they know? Who could have foreseen that in 1905? And and you look at our world today. I mean, I enjoy a good ball game once in a while, but my, my God, people are so obsessed with this, it takes their focus over the things that really uh, matter. Uh, but it's an amazing it's an amazing document, and uh, you know Hitler wrote about it in Mein Kampf. Uh, he said the fact that the Frank, the, the Jewish-owned Frankfurter Zeitung, the newspaper, uh, moans and groans that these are forgeries, that alone is evidence of their authenticity. <laughs> yeah, but the, 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 the sports, for example, the, this comes all the way back to uh, the Caesarean times I mean, when they had the breads and circuses. Yeah, as you say, now they have how many hundreds of channels with sports and endless seasons all the time. One season ends for football, the baseball begins, it's always the same thing. Yeah, I mean, that, that's what it is, bread and, bread and circuses. And, and that accomplishes two things. I mean, it not only diverts attention from what matters, people become fixated on that, but it also... Um, you know, it redirects that instinctive impulse that, you know, we have to defend our, you know, our people, our families, our folk. That whole tribal mentality can be positive when it's channeled to defensive purposes. But, but now the whole us versus them influence 
is redirected towards, you know, my team versus the other guy's team. So uh, when we should be looking at, you know, what's happening to us as a people and, and our nations are being destroyed, uh, let's rally together and win that game. But that's been redirected, that whole natural male impulse. And we're pro progressing in time, and we'll get to, to, to World War II, but all this is chronologically important to, to the main matter tonight. November 1912, what were the New World seven New World Order, seven major goals that it wanted to achieve that decade? It's uh, page 33, by the way. Okay. Well, let me uh, fast forward a bit. <clears throat> I, uh, I don't have the paperback version in front of me right now. Give me a moment. Oh, okay. I'm going to uh, pull up the... Uh, yeah, the PDF. Yeah. Well, I, I know I know one of the major objectives was to establish a central bank in America that would have monopoly uh, control of the money of the money supply, and the primary movers and shakers behind that were again the same culprits, the the Rothschilds and their agents, the Schiffs and the uh, and the Warburgs. So that was uh, central banking is critical, and then you have to understand that when when Hitler came to power in Germany. He took away the central bank from these people, and uh, he nationalized the bank. So that was that was that was one of the major objectives. Uh, I can read the the rest if you want me to. I've got it right here. And another, Good. the second one would be to impose an income tax on America, so that state debt to the central bank could be collateralized by human labor. That's what we it, are. Wasn't it interesting, Mike, that 1913, we see the rise of the Federal Reserve, and then all of a sudden, 1914, we see the Tax Revenue Act. Is that a coincidence? Oh, not at all. They, they go hand in hand, because if, if the people are to be mired in perpetual debt, in order to pay the interest on that debt to the big bankers, uh, you need collateral, and the collateral is our labor. It's that money coming right out of our check. And so. folks, folks, ask yourselves, I remember probably this happened with you too when you and I were growing up. You would get uh, your Social Security card. Your parents would request it when you were old enough to get a job at 15 or 16. Now, you don't leave the hospital with your baby unless you fill out the form, which you can decline, by the way. But since most people look at a doctor with a robe or a hospital director, they don't let you leave the hospital unless you fill out the paperwork. Why? Because the moment you get that number, that's millions of dollars in collateral that the Federal Reserve receives on your human labor. Are we slaves? Yep. Hey, and, you know, it was somebody's idea of a sick joke. Um, they changed the name of the personnel department and all the companies to human resources i don't know how that came about but <laughs> right. what a what a dehumanizing title you know you used to be a person hence personnel now you're a human resource uh, you're no different than like a machine or a hammer or the copying machine <laughs> i never understood why and this is this is something different but you know i analyzed financial statements for a living many years ago and i always wonder if you have very very good human quote unquote human resources why are they not an asset to the business? In other words, if Mike King is the best salesman in the world, why can't I put him as an asset? And the moment you leave, you reduce the asset. But anyway, that's a, it's a different story. Yeah. Well, going on to the seven objectives, you have the central bank, the income tax. The other one was to trigger the long-awaited war between the Triple Entente and the Triple Alliance. 
to reshape Europe. Uh, they already knew that out of such chaos, uh, they would be able to replace governments, redraw the map, and of course, establish the League of Nations, which was the original embryo of the one world government. Um, of course, number four was to entangle the United States, which at time, that time was really still detached from European affairs. I mean, we engaged in commerce, but politically we're not involved, but to entangle the U.S. into the coming war in the one world movement. And number five was to overthrow the czar and convert the Russian empire into a communist super state. And number six was to, uh, uh, we talked about the League of Nations, of course, and seven would be to carry out Herschel's plan, Herschel's plan to steal Palestine from the Turks and Arabs. All seven of these were in play before uh, the war, 1910. They were already in play. So these are not things that I'm looking back on in re retrospect and saying all, all these seven things came out of the war, uh, unintended consequences. Uh, no, I established clearly these were already in play. Um, and the key point was triggering the war because five of those points came right out, come right out of the war. Was there a Perot, Rose Perot moment before Woodrow Wilson was uh, elected? Because I see here that uh, the one who was supposed to win was uh, uh, President Taft. But then again, Teddy Roosevelt ran against him on a progressive platform, which diluted Taft's vote. So Woodrow Wilson won. Is that the case? Yeah. Um, I mean, Taft was a very popular incumbent. He was a Republican. And he would have none of the stuff. He was a traditional uh, constitutionalist. So there was no way that this type of agenda was going to move forward with Taft in there. Uh, so in order to beat Taft, who was a uh, private secretary of Bernard Baruch at the time, he was a very high-level uh, Jewish operative who later turned against him. Uh, but what they did is, is they, they put up Woodrow Wilson, a little puppet professor from Princeton, who had no shot, no chance to beat Taft. But then they went and got the ex-president, Teddy Roosevelt, who was their total puppet, and they had him run again. And the idea was to split the Republican vote, and that's indeed what happened. And with just 41% of the vote, uh, Wilson was elected president, the wholly owned puppet. Woodrow Wilson was elected president, and he would begin to aggressively move on those agenda items that we just discussed. <coughs> Richard uh, Cottrell, you may know who he is, a former politician from the UK, author of the book Operation Gladio, told me that Bernard Baruch was probably one of the most... Uh, this man should have been hung f f with treason charged with treason. What do you know about Bernard Brook? Well, he's definitely one of the biggest men of the uh, 20th century. Um, I mean, he was influencing presidents and policy from 1920 all the way up until the 1950s. Uh, uh, you know, in, in fact, when Bernard Baruch brought candidate Woodrow Wilson to New York City, uh, Curtis Dahl, who was the uh, son-in-law of Franklin Delano Roosevelt described the event as Bernard Baruch led Wilson about as one would a poodle on a string. <laughs> right. Uh, very similar to how George Soros uh, 
used to parade Barack Obama about. Um, so his power was immense. When the war broke out, he was basically made uh, the czar of American industry. He headed up the uh, the War Industries Board, uh, which made him the the dictator of the American economy for two years. Uh, the, so his power was immense, immense. And there are two uh, other characters there with uh, Baruch, Jacob Schiff, and the Warburg, Warburg brothers. Yeah. Well, yeah, Schiff, Schiff was probably, he was the biggest, you know, the biggest of the Jewish moguls from 1880 to 1920. And then the mantle passed to uh, Bernard uh, Baruch. Uh, and as the war, now as far as the Warburg uh, brothers, they were related to Schiff through marriage. Uh, Paul Warburg is the father of the U.S. Federal Reserve System. And he was also the first director of the Council on Foreign Relations, which works for world, world government. So these, these were really the string pullers. These men owned Woodrow uh, Wilson. And, and this is when the globalist Zionist agenda really began to take off. And in my book, I have their pictures. And there's also some other big names from that era. They were all surrounded Wilson. Louis Brandeis, Samuel Untermeyer, uh, Heim Weissman, Rabbi Stephen Wise. Uh, I mean, the, the Wilson presidency was as kosher as a bar mitzvah. And now we go to the assassination of Archduke uh, Franz Ferdinand. And this is how things accelerate all the way from World War One, the the tripwire that caused World War One, to what happened World War Two. What was the chain reaction that caused World War One? Well, you know, these alliances had been set in place. We uh, talked earlier about the Franco-Russian alliance, and then the, the British joined in. I mean, this alliance was set in place for the specific purpose of bringing about the Great War. But, you know, you needed the triggering mechanism. So they found uh, some Serbian patsies to assassinate the, uh, uh, the heir to the crown of Austria-Hungary. Um, and then that, that was blamed on Serbia. And that put Austria-Hungary in an adversarial position with Serbia. The problem with that is Serbia was protected by Russia. Um, and then Austria-Hungary was protected by Germany. So, you know, once those dominoes were triggered, uh, you have a world war. Um, but the important thing to know is that after the assassination, when there was great tension between Austria-Hungary and Serbia, it was Germany that intervened and tried to put pressure on its ally, on its contractual ally, Austria-Hungary, to, to sit down and talk and not go to war against Serbia. The, the uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II worked very hard to avoid that war, but it was not to be because the French were already mobilizing and uh, Austria-Hungary was being pushed by the Jewish press into going to war against Serbia, which would bring Russia in. But it was only when it became clear to Germany that uh, France is on the move in the West. Russia is on the move in the East. We have to defend ourselves. <clears throat> Germany was the last of the European countries to mobilize for war. They were totally innocent of World War One. Wasn't Wilhelm the cousin of the Tsar at the time? Yeah, the, that's right. They were second cousins. Mm -hmm. And I talk in a book about the the wiki uh, wiki. Uh, I'm sorry. Nicky Willie telegrams they were referred to. Nicky being Tsar Nicholas, Willie for uh, Kaiser Wilhelm. <clears throat> At the 11th hour, as um, forces 
which neither one could totally control, were bringing Europe towards war, they exchanged a series of telegrams. And if you read the language of these telegrams, it's clear that neither the Tsar nor the Kaiser wanted this war. But, you know, because of the way these alliances were set up, it's almost as if they were like, couldn't control it. But in, it, in one of the telegrams, we have the Tsar thanking Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany for his intervention in trying to calm the situation down and avoid the war. So, you know, you, you have there a verification from Russia, which ultimately went to war with Germany, uh, that Germany was trying to avoid the war. Uh, the problem was Austria-Hungary. The problem was France. Um, I mean, you, if you look at all the key players, everybody had something to gain from the Great War, or everybody did something to help bring it about, except for Germany. Germany was totally innocent of World War One, and in the end, when they lost, they they were forced to accept total responsibility, which is completely uh, ludicrous. And we'll talk about the Treaty of Versailles that really raped in Germany. But wasn't the case with the with all these royal blood intermarriages, uh, Germany and also Great Britain at the time? Wasn't it the same? Oh, yeah. Actually, the King of England was also related to the, uh, right. the Tsar and the Kaiser. But <clears throat> what you have to understand is, although that these were monarchies, that these weren't like individual absolute dictators. They had uh, parliaments, they had people with their own agendas, they had intriguers. So you had the situation where even where though the Tsar and the Kaiser didn't want to go to war, there were powerful people within their governments already that were kind of undermining that. And indeed, in one telegram, the Tsar, he asked the Kaiser, he says, I appreciate your cordial and peaceful tone, but what I don't understand is why is it that your foreign office is taking a harder line. And Bismarck warned about this 20 years earlier that there would be intriguers. So, you know, even when you're a czar, even when you're a dictator, you don't always have total control of the uh, the high-ranking people beneath you and the kind of games that they might play. Even Bismarck, when he was dying, didn't he predict what was going to happen in the next few years? That, yeah, that's right. He, he warned uh, Kaiser Wilhelm. He says, if things keep going the way they are, the great collapse and crisis will come in 20 years. And the prophecy was fulfilled almost exactly 20 years later. But he, he warned Kaiser Wilhelm about something that could happen in the Balkans with this whole situation with Serbia and Austria-Hungary. Um, but he also warned him, too, about trusting people and intriguers in the government. So certainly, I'm certain that there were uh, Freemasons in the German government, as well as Austria-Hungary, as well as Russia. So you have a whole lower level of people, uh, although they don't have the power of a czar or a kaiser, uh, they still have a lot of power to do a lot of damage and create a situation in which even the king cannot control anymore. And that is very clear when you read those wiki, uh, uh, willy-nicky telegrams. Neither one of these men were in total control of the situation. They did not want to go against the war against each other, yet that's what ended up happening. And the Freemasons, you mentioned them, who do you think they were allied to at the time? How powerful were the Freemasons back then? Well, they were, they've been powerful, influential since the French Revolution, and they served the interests 
uh, of the globalists, of the New World Order gang. It's not that the Freemasons are the NWO. It's just that the NWO was able to use them and their lodges and their secrecy and their whole fraternity mindset to, to achieve certain ends. Um, so, but that's, that's who they were aligned with, the, the One World Movement. So something happened, and I don't mean to deviate from the topic at hand, but something yeah. happened with the Freemasons. I think it was 1728 when uh, they stopped building all these magnificent cathedrals everywhere because the Pope found out what their real purpose was. They were planting this in their monuments. They were planting uh, hidden signals, if you will, and uh, the Pope said, no more, and we don't see any of those cathedrals anywhere. And that's when they came to Washington and they started building over here. Yeah. I mean, you clearly see the Masonic influence. I mean, you see it on the back of a dollar bill with all seeing eye and the pyramid, um, the Washington Monument, some of the architecture of Washington, uh, D.C. Um, so that's present. Um, but, you know, again, the, the, the Freemasons were never the conspiracy in and of itself as much as it was a tool that was taken over and, 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 and used uh, by them. Uh, ultimately, all roads lead back to uh, the Rothschilds and their immediate uh, tribal brethren. That's the inner core of this thing. And of course, we don't hear that in the mainstream media for a specific reason. And also, when you t tell people about all this, they look at you as a conspiracy theorist without having any kind of information. As, and so we say, what is it? Uh, the height of ignorance. What is it? What is it? Uh, I'll find it later. Yeah. But the, the quote comes to mind, to the, the Voltaire, to learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize. But we have to take one and only break. We're going in chronological order, so we're going to get to the meat of things during segment two once we get to World War II, the bad war, the book. How can people buy it, Mike? Well, they can go either to the website, which is tomatobubble.com, and they will clearly see um, that they can pick it up in paperback version. It will link to Amazon, uh, or they can also get it as a PDF file through the website. I would recommend people get the paperback just for the simple version of the artwork on the uh, front and back cover, uh, which was done by the legendary David Dees. That alone is worth having. Uh, but you can either go to Amazon, look for The Bad War, or just go to tomatobubble.com, which people really need to bookmark anyway for all of its other content. And kudos to our friend David Dees. It's, it's almost as every other guest I have has a book with David D's illustrations. He's just magnif the magnificent David D's. What I was saying is condemnation without investigation is the height of ignorance. When you give all these facts and somebody says to you, oh, you're just being anti-Semite. I'm so tired of listening to that. I'm not an anti-Semite. I just want to know our true history because if we forget where we came from, we will know where we're going. And once again, that Voltaire quote, to learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize. This is Mel Fabregas listening to Veritas, and we'll be right back with more. Mike King is our special guest tonight. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com, click on Members, or subscribe. Or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, detoxified iodine, 
supplements, our USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy. Enjoy. 